The Sermon on the Mount gets under your skin. Its beauty everyone acknowledges, but its content challenges our most treasured convictions about living. Dave Wordson invites us to join in the discussion of Matthew 5 verses 1 through 12. These instructions are guaranteed to get us misunderstood and persecuted, but in the end will reign forever. The world might call Jesus' teaching wimpy, but God calls it truth. What man wants to be a wimp? These days you lose the women as well because everyone knows that you've got to be self-assertive as a woman if you want to get ahead. You've got to stop letting people step on you. You've got to stop letting people come down on you. And somehow the Sermon on the Mount gets moved over into an idea that in our relationships with one another, that the essence of what Jesus is saying is, blessed is the individual who has a very low self-esteem. Blessed is the person who lets people walk all over them. Blessed is the person who allows people to abuse them because they recognize that there's just such a scum. There's such a worm. You see, that tends to be what troubles us about this sermon. And yet, it's so prominent that there's probably no portion of Scripture that's been commented on, written about, if I were to ask the average person, name the most famous saying about the life of Christ that you know and they're going to come out with the Sermon on the Mount. Or in Luke, the Sermon on the Plain, which is probably Jesus just coming down off kind of a hilly area into a grassy plain or plateau in the mountains, and then he began to teach. So probably Luke's Plain and Matthew's Mountain are probably the same geographical area. And what we need to do if we're going to get the life of Christ into our life is we're going to have to listen very, very carefully. And what I want to share with you as we talk about the Sermon on the Mount is some of the most important messages that I could ever teach you. And you're going to have to listen very, very carefully because the Lord's teaching can easily be misunderstood. But the reason it's so important is from the depths of my being, as a pastor teacher, I look at you and I realize that we're all growing up together. But one of the biggest responsibilities that I believe that a pastor teacher has is to get you ready so that as you live this precious gift called life, you don't suddenly wake up if the Lord graciously gives you 80 years and have nothing. You see, what I covet for every one of you is that as you near the end, that there will be a whole circle of people around you who love you, who cherish you, who will tenderly meet your needs at a time where you can't meet your own needs. And the reason they'll do that is because your life has such value, such worth, because you meant so much to them. There are some real high rollers that are playing golf today. In fact, they believe that the teaching that I'm going to give you the next few weeks is just plain bunk. It doesn't work. It just causes you to be abused. You never climb the corporate ladder following these principles, usually. And so they think that it's just for the weaklings, for those that just can't live. What I want to share with you is that the words of Jesus, the more that you'll allow them to permeate your life, the more that you allow them to get into your soul, the more they'll become the good news. 
because they'll heal your person. They'll give you a, a happiness and a contentment that no circumstance can take away from you. No external circumstance can take away from you. And so as we approach the Sermon on the Mount, we want to understand that we're not going to be talking about how you get in to the kingdom, necessarily talking about the entrance requirements for getting into the kingdom. In fact, if that's the case, then we all have very good reason for being discouraged because the Lord's going to talk to us about a lifestyle which in many ways is always a goal that's out there. It's always uh, a model that we're seeking to attain, and yet in one sense there's no way that we can attain it. So if we approach it as entrance requirements to the kingdom, we're going to have grave difficulty. In fact, it'll be very easy for us to slip into the same errors that the early Pharisees did and the, some of the Jews in the Old Testament did because they turned the law of Moses into an instruction to get right with God. And therefore, they missed the heartbeat of the law, which was to bring us to a zero point when we would realize our total bankruptcy before God, and then you yell for help. And rather than the Sermon on the Mount being an exhortation of if you meet these requirements and you'll get into the kingdom of God, this sermon in many ways is a stamp of approval upon someone deep in their heart that's crying out, help, Daddy, help me, I need you, which is just the heart attitude that many times makes the difference between heaven and hell. Now, how many of you have ever heard an unbeliever, when you ask an unbeliever about the Sermon on the Mount, uh, they say, well, that's the way I'm going to live. That's the way I think I'm going to get to heaven. How many of you have ever heard that? I'm going to get to heaven by keeping the Sermon on the Mount. You know, the next question to ask somebody that is, have you read the Sermon on the Mount recently? Um, well, uh, I'm not so sure. That's the incredible thing to me about people these days. People make the un most unbelievable statements about what they think the Bible's saying. They're such authorities and they have such insight, and they'll say something like, I'm keeping this Sermon on the Mount in order to get to heaven. And when you ask them, well, how often have you read it? What are some of the principles of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, blessed are the poor, and then that's about as far as we can get. Well, what we want to do is to forever as a group of believers take away that concept where I say, oh, yeah, I believe in the Sermon on the Mount, but we really don't know what it says. So let's go there, Matthew chapter 5, and let's begin to look at the introduction of the setting of the sermon. At the end of chapter 4... Matthew gives us kind of a brief video of the kind of ministry that the Lord had. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Now what Matthew's going to do in chapter 5, 6, and 7 is he's going to give us kind of a cross-section of the kind of teaching that Jesus gave as he traveled from one synagogue to the next. And he's going to put it in a very specific setting of Jesus teaching the disciples on the mountain. Then in chapter 8 and 9, we're going to have a series of snapshots on how Jesus brought healing to demoniacs, to people with epilepsy, to people that were crippled, to people that were blind. We're going to learn in the next few chapters about his teaching. And then in chapter 8 and 9, we'll learn about his tremendous, miraculous power. And when we get to that section, we're going to share together about Jesus and disease and talk to you about healing, try to get into some of the biblical insights into healing and Jesus' ministry and Jesus today. 
There's a lot of concern about demonic activity recently. There's a number one book that's permeating the Christian community, causing many people to be aware about the demonic influence in the world. We're going to be talking about Jesus and the power of evil. So that's going to be coming in the coming weeks. But before we get into the works and the actions of Jesus, we need to get into his thoughts, get into his teaching. And so we want to spend the next few weeks by talking about Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and try to get into a portion of Scripture which, amazingly enough, in all the training that I had, I spent very little time studying the Sermon on the Mount. So in many ways, this is an exciting time for me because this is right at the soul of Jesus Christ. In verse 1, we read that when Jesus saw the crowds, and they're going to be kind of an outside circle as we go through this sermon. There are crowds. There are unbelievers. There are those that are interested, that are kind of on the outside listening. That's what the crowd represents in Matthew. This is the crowd that will be amazed at his teaching. This is the crowd that will bring the sick to be healed. This is the crowd that will say, is this not the prophet? This is also the crowd at the end of the book of Matthew that will yell, crucify him. So the crowd is a very ambivalent group in the book of Matthew. So they're kind of on the outside. Then we have another group. He sat down, which is the authoritative position of a rabbi, and his disciples came to him. And he began to teach them, or he in good Hebrew fashion opened his mouth and he taught, which stresses the authority of what he's going to say. Now at this point, just don't think of the 12 apostles. When you read disciples, in fact, in Matthew's gospel, though, in the life of Christ, we've already introduced the calling of this 12 to the Lord. We did that the last time we met together and talked about follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. When you read disciples in Matthew, though, it's not till Matthew 10 that you've got the singling out of those 12. So at this point, disciples speaks much more generally of those that are beginning to respond to the Messiah. Jesus is preaching the kingdom of God. Now that's a phrase that you can hear. The kingdom of heaven is a phrase you can hear. And it's not one of those phrases that we tend to get excited about. I want the idea of the kingdom of God to begin to move in your being. You see, I want us to pray that the Lord will raise up children and young people that will be willing to live and die for the kingdom of God. I want us to be a group of adults that the heartbeat of our life is the kingdom of God. Now, what do I mean by the kingdom of God? The authority of God. The dominion of God. You see, we think of the kingdom of heaven and we automatically think in terms of being up there in heaven somewhere in a spatial place. And there is a space called heaven where God dwells. Whatever a space means in the eternal realm, I don't know. But there is a sense in which we're going home to heaven. And some of what we're going to be reading is going to point our eyes towards the future, towards a day when the kingdom of God will truly be visible in every sense of the word. But the kingdom of heaven is also an authority now. It's submitting to a king now. If you were living in England, if you were living in England as an American, and you came to a group and the queen came to our church and all the Englishmen stood up and they said, Hail to the Queen of England. What would you do as an American? 
Well, you would probably be all embarrassed as an American. You would kind of sit there and shuffle and everything else. And probably a whole lot of us would just stand right up and say, Hail the Queen of England, just like everybody else. You see, what I'm saying is that as Americans, I'm not under the authority of the Queen of England. I respect her. I honor her. But I'll never say hail to the Queen of England. The Queen of England, we fought a war to get out from underneath the dominion of the Queen of England, the King George, right? You see, as an American, when I speak to you like that, there's some very deep levels deep inside of you that go, I'm not under the dominion of anybody. Oh, yes, you are. Every single one of us are under the authority you are submitting to ideas, to principles, to things that you believe with all your heart are reality. You see, what you've got to get a hold about Jesus is that Jesus is not just some nice fella, some nice rabbi kind of wearing a long white robe, a nice teacher that we come and we think a little bit about on Sunday morning. And we receive some nice teaching and we go, oh, that's nice. Gives a little comfort along the way. And then we go out and do our thing. Jesus will not tolerate that. And the Jesus that came 2,000 years ago is not that kind of a Jesus at all. The Jesus that came 2,000 years ago came with this message. Now get it. The Jesus that came 2,000 years ago said the prophets of the Old Testament promised that a comforter would come that a Messiah, an anointed one, would come. In fact, Malachi said that the Lord himself would come. The Lord God, the infinite, immortal, invisible God, would come into this planet. And John tells us that the King is God come in the flesh and dwelling among us. And Jesus is demanding absolute submission to his authority over our life. And what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's telling us the kind of people who respond to him as the king. The kind of person who, when they hear Jesus talking, says, I believe that. That's meeting the deepest hungers of my soul. You see, what this portion of Scripture is telling us is the kind of crowds that got past just coming to an to be interested in Jesus, thinking, oh, he's a good prophet, he's a good teacher, to the kind of people that got into what he was saying. And they really believed it. And so right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, the king starts to lay out the kind of people that are in his dominion. And I want you to contrast it with the kind of person that you might be, with the kind of person that you work with. Because whether you like it or not, you're in one kingdom or the other. And the more discernment that you can get, get into this. Some of you are very confused in your spiritual life because you got one foot in the kingdom of heaven, you got one foot in the kingdom of the world, and it's pulling you apart. You need to start to think clearly. You need to start to get whole in your inner being. So Jesus begins, as he begins talking to those that are beginning to follow him. Look what he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now what in the world does he mean by the poor in spirit? Luke 6 just says, blessed are the poor. Well, all of us say amen. How many of you are poor? Then you're blessed. How many of you think that you're rich? You're not going to be as quick to raise your hand. 
You see, when I say the word poor, we automatically begin to think in terms of socioeconomic terms. And that's why you need to listen very carefully. Do you know that in the Holy Scriptures, sometimes the Bible says that the poor are not blessed at all? You know, there are some poor that according to Proverbs chapter 30 are so poor that they steal and break the Ten Commandments that says thou shalt not steal and they're under the curse of God. You see, you can begin at the beginning of the Bible, move to the end, you're going to find something out. Just being without money, just being without food, just being without water doesn't get anybody brownie points with God. It doesn't open yourself to God. But I want to share something with you. If you are poor, it's very possible it'll be a lot easier for you to get into the kingdom of God. Because how do you feel when you're poor? Can somebody give some testimonies? How do you feel when you're poor? What do you do when you don't have any money? Well, I know what my kids do when they don't have any money. Daddy, I need some help. I'm usually saying, hey, kids, I need some help. They have more money than I do. But you see, if you're poor, one of the basic ingredients of your life is probably, help me. I need help. Now, if you're rich, if you're rich, and the truth of the matter is that some of us are, we're very self-sufficient. We don't need any help. In fact, that's why Jesus said that it's hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. Because if you've got, if you've got a lot of money in the bank today, and if you feel very secure in your job, and as you go to the plant, everybody says, wow, you know, there he is. There's the boss. And everybody butters you up. You're in deadly territory, friends. You see, some of the hardest times in my life, for example, when I was a program director at Word of Life Ranch, when I would walk into a room, I've shared with this some of you in the past, when there would be 400 kids at camp. When I would walk into the room, 400 kids would stand up and applaud us. It was like being one of the Dallas Cowboys or something. Do you know that was deadly? You know why? You start to think you're somebody. And every single one of us are incredibly vulnerable to saying, blessed are the self-sufficient. I don't need anybody. There's some of you men that are right here. They're saying, I don't need anybody. There are some of you that are so religious that you look around the room and, and really your honest thought is, I'm as good as anybody else here. I don't really worry too much about eternity. I don't worry too much about the kingdom of heaven because if anyone's going to get in, I'll get in. You're strong in your spirit. Get me out on a soccer field. I've got a strong spirit. We're going to win. We can do it. And in athletics, that's part of the game. It's part of the way that you play, so you play competitively. But in life, you'll lose in the kingdom of heaven. Because you know what Jesus is saying? You see, if you turn to the book of Isaiah, turn to Isaiah chapter 61, which is the backdrop of all that we're studying. Isaiah chapter 61. Portion of scripture that we don't look at very often, but it's very important to the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, Matthew puts his whole teaching on the Sermon on the Mount based upon Isaiah chapter 61. Look what it says, Isaiah 61 verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to thee. Tell me. Poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
Isaiah 61 talks about the poor. And what does Isaiah mean when he talks about the poor? Isaiah preached in a time when the northern kingdom of Israel had rebelled against the Lord. The southern kingdom of Israel later on did exactly the same thing. They lived saying, we can do it ourselves. They said, we can make our own plans. We can build our own chariots. We can do it ourselves. They were a lot like us as Americans. We've got our military plants. We can protect ourselves. We're the most powerful nation in the world. That's the way Israel was. Only Israel was supposed to be a theocracy. They were supposed to be a people that was totally dependent upon the Lord. And when Isaiah was preaching, the children of Israel would walk around and they'd have their head up high. Nobody can beat us. We're going to use our diplomacy. We'll use our cunning. We're going to win. But when Jesus came to Palestine in the first century, he did not come to a people with their heads held high because armies had rolled over those people. And they had been reduced. They knew what it was to not have any food at all and to emaciate down to 90 pounds. They knew what it was to be totally at the mercy of Assyrian armies that would just butcher the, the multitude, just like the Nazis did, and just pile skulls up. There wasn't a family in Israel that wasn't mutilated by the Assyrian invasion from the north. And the same thing happened in 586 with the Babylonians. And Jesus came to a people that saw their beloved temple of God torn down stone by stone and the people sent into exile. The poor in the Old Testament are those that because they're under the wrath and the judgment of God have been rejected because they trusted in themselves. They trusted in themselves. But in this period of total zero, in this period when they began to realize, I don't have any resources. I don't have any, anybody to defend me. I don't have anybody that will protect me. I am at zero point in my life. That's when a window of opportunity would open up according to the Old Testament prophet. In Hosea chapter 14, if the people would only come and come to the Lord with empty hands and come before Him and say, Lord, we have nothing. We will never depend upon ourselves again. You don't have to forgive us. We are poor in our spirit. We are poor spiritual. In fact, I could translate it, we are bankrupt spiritually. Then the Lord says, blessed are the bankrupt spiritually. For they're the ones that are going to have the kingdom of heaven. And the poor are just a whole lot, it, it's a lot easier to be poor and get that attitude. But you know what? There were some rich men in the scripture like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea that were poor in their spirit. I want to share something with you. The phrase poor in spirit does not mean that you're a woman and your dad didn't love you he might have even abused you and you have just a zero view of yourself. So you interpret blessed are the poor in spirit to mean blessed are those who just are nothing. And they let people abuse them because they're to the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus is talking about poverty before God. You see, what you're going to get a hold of is that we're not talking about somebody who feels poor in regard to somebody else. 
In fact, the person that we're talking about here understands reality. They know what they really are. And therefore, they, they know where true value lies and they get their eyes on the vertical dimension. There's a whole lot of you that think the Christian life is being like Casper Miltos, I'm just poor. You're kind of like Uriah Heep, I'm so humble. You haven't understood at all what the kingdom of God is. You're not bankrupt, you're really proud as a peacock. And you're going to come out swinging. If you're a little wife here that from that time you were 18 years old, you said, oh, I can't believe my husband loves me. I don't deserve to be loved. I'm such a jerk. I'm such an idiot. I can't do anything. You're going to get to be 45 and you're going to be a tiger. Because sooner or later you're going to get so mad, you're going to cry out, I am somebody. And you are. And that husband doesn't need to abuse me. The tragedy is a whole lot of you will miss the boat again. You'll become just like your husband. You'll think you're somebody because you'll always be comparing on the horizontal level. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are bankrupt spiritually because theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. The chorus puts it this way, just as I am without one plea. How many of you plea? But daddy, you don't understand. Everybody was doing it. I was raised wrong. Everybody, every one of us just automatically go into pleas. I work with somebody that's just committed a terrible crime and they're going to go into court and they're going to say, but Dave, we need to really argue this case. We need to, you know, we need to look at it carefully and my lawyer can defend me. And they're pleading, 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 pleading. God hasn't really done a work in a heart that's pleading. You see, if God is beginning to do a work in your heart, you're going to say, I'm poor in my spirit. I'm bankrupt. I was speaking at a church one day and I was talking kind of like this and somebody in the church said, you know, that preacher just doesn't think we're spiritual at all. And what I was saying was, I don't think any of us are spiritual. Not in the kingdom sense at all. If you come to that zero point, then it's evidence. And I'll say congratulations. If you sit here and you say, I'm bankrupt spiritually, congratulations. Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. The next phrase says something else. Blessed are those who mourn. We've got to be happy. Man, when we come to church, we need to, we need to really be thrilled. And we should because we, haven't, you know, we're, we are sons of the kingdom now. But there needs to be some mourning. How many of you have cried a little bit this week? There's nothing wrong with crying. Now, just, I want you to stop and think about it. Why do you cry? You know what? I don't cry very much at all. In fact, I really get under Mary's skin sometimes because when, when I should cry, I don't cry. I'm programmed for it. You see, everybody else can cry, but I'm often in situations where if I cry, then everything's going to be lost because I'm often directing a service or a funeral or something like that. And not that it's wrong to cry, but it's built in me not to cry. How many of you have ever cried and you said, oh, I can't believe I cried? How many of you have ever done that? Now, why do you do that? You know why I do it? Because I'm proud. I want you to know that I'm in control. I want you to know that I'm powerful. I want you to know that I have everything together. 
In fact, I work very, very hard to be in control. So do you. You know what Jesus says? Blessed are those who just cry. You know what, if I'm honest with you, you know there's an ache in my heart. Things are not right. You know, this week, Mary and I, for about four hours, there's a Wally, one of our precious friends. For four hours on Thursday, we just sat there watching a terrible disease wreak havoc on a body. I hate that. A lot of you have been there yourself. Death doesn't make any sense. Sickness doesn't make any sense. And I cry about it. In fact, I saw different ones, different friends of mine that would come and they'll hang their head and you'll see big tears begin to come down their cheeks. And a lot of you will say to me, I'm so embarrassed that I do that. I can't even say anything. There isn't anything to say. What can we say? You can't put into words the agony that, that, are, that our daddies give birth to us and they take care of us. And they teach us skills. And they're the strong ones for sons. And then they get old. And sons have to be the strong ones for dads. And a body that was designed to live forever is cursed. And it completely wears out. I hope there's an ache in your soul about that. In fact, that's the ache that most Americans are running away from like crazy. They deny that completely. They act as if it's never, never going to happen. As a pastor teacher, I can never, never, never get away from that. Because every single week, I have to walk into a room where Jesus says, David, this present kingdom isn't going to last very long, even at best. You could drive limousines, you can have beautiful homes, but if I don't care who it is, when you as a pastor go into the room, they are all the same. And there should be a terrible ache on our souls because we're not home yet. Feel very free to cry because there's a lot of things that are worth crying about. You know what Jesus said? Congratulations. If you're not laughing in the kingdom of this world, if there's a deep ache in your soul, many of you come up to me this week and said, it just isn't right. That's right, it isn't right. That's the point. Things aren't right yet. Things aren't as they should be. That's why don't get so comfortable. There's a lot of great things about being in this world. And if you get a hold of what I'm saying, you'll live right in this world. You'll have it together in this world. But it won't be fakey. It won't be pretend. It won't be like a bunch of bankers in Hawaii that are sitting in a beautiful environment and they've got to drink themselves till they're just oblivious to the beautiful surrounding because they can't take the pain. I don't want you to live that way. I want you to be able to face reality. And reality is that this planet is under a curse and it's not too good. It's not right. If you cry over it, blessed are you. Congratulations, the king says to you. You know what it shows? If you are sitting here and you say, David, 
I know I'm not home yet. I don't feel very comfortable. Things just aren't what they ought to be. There's a, there's a passion in my being. Sometimes I just weep over it. it just, things are just not right. Praise the Lord. You know why? That's the Spirit of God inside of you. It's making you homesick. But it's not a homesickness that should paralyze you. It's a homesickness that should cause you to start to reach out to others so that they can get into the kingdom that's going to last forever. And to start to think clearly, blessed are those who mourn. Because you're going to be comforted. You're going to be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the kingdom of the earth. Now, the word meek is, I talked about Casper Miltos in the beginning. And man, that word meek conjures up. In English, it even means Casper Miltos. If you look it up in the dictionary, it comes out, you know, somebody that is, you know, just kind of soft. I think it even uses the word effeminate. Right, the girls won't like that. But you know, in Hebrew and in Isaiah 61, when it talks about meekness, it's a word that should be very precious to all of us. You know what it means? It means integrity. Blessed are those who are complete for through and through committed to the Lord. In fact, in the psalm it says, Blessed are the gentle that are wholeheartedly committed to the Lord. That's really the person that has it together. The meek person is the person biblically that has put it all upon the Lord. Moses, for example, was said to be the meekest man in the Old Testament. And he had the strength to lead two million people. But he was meek because he was totally dependent upon God most of the time. And that's what the Lord is looking for in us. In fact, the way this is constructed, blessed are the poor, is equivalent to blessed are the meek. It's like synonymous A equals B kind of thinking. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. It's the same thing. And what I want you to start to get a hold of, it's this person who realizes that as I stand in the presence of God, I don't have any pleas. There's no self-righteousness. There's nothing I can do to get in. And so, Daddy, I just need you to help me. And Jesus said, those are the ones that get in to the kingdom of God. All of us as individuals are having an impact. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 5 because Jesus talks to us about the mission that he wants us to have in the world. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 14. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven that they might see your good deeds and as they look at the life of a disciple of Jesus, they are directed to praise and glorify the Lord God of heaven. One of the things that Jesus is trying to get across to us as disciples is that if we claim to be a follower of Christ, automatically our lives are having an impact. 
all over this area, people are making judgments about Jesus Christ based upon my life and based upon your life. And Jesus is saying that the essence of a disciple's life is to direct people through their life to the Savior. Now we would say, well, what kind of a life, what kind of a life causes people to glorify God? And that's where we pick up our discussion because Jesus is laying out the kingdom characteristics, the character that the Lord generates in our life that over time, though there will be persecution, though there will be misunderstandings, over time, this is the kingdom kind of a life that causes people to look at this group of people and to glorify God. And that's the meaning of life. We began by looking at some of these kingdom characteristics. We looked at the poor in spirit, and we discussed the reality that it doesn't mean necessarily to be poor materially. In fact, the scripture stresses that some of God's most choice servants were very wealthy. Abraham, it highlights how wealthy that he was. It mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that if you are given the riches of this world, you are to be rich in good deeds. And you're to use it to be able to minister to the needs of others. Luke chapter 6 talks about the reality where it says, Blessed are the poor. Luke is pointing out the reality of the fact that in the first century, most of the believers objectively were poor. And Luke is also stressing that the poor are much closer to what it means to be bankrupt in spirit because just by its nature, if you, if you don't have any money and you don't have any resources, you tend to turn to God, although not necessarily, but you tend to pray, you tend to depend upon Him, and you're closer to responding to a Savior that says, you're going to have to come to zero point in your life, you're going to have to come to the point where you say, I'm bankrupt spiritually. We also talked about the idea that blessed are those who mourn. It's not saying blessed are the depressed, blessed are those who are self-pitying, doesn't it say blessed are those who cry because they feel so low about themselves? The idea of mourning is picking up on the Old Testament idea of the people of God who have recognized their rebellion against God. In Hosea chapter 14, the people of Israel finally come in the day of salvation, which is a future day for the nation of Israel, even to us today. And in Hosea 14, the people come and they weep before Yahweh. They weep before God. And they say, we don't bring anything in our hands. We will never trust in our war chariots again. We'll never trust in our armaments. We recognize that we're orphans. We recognize that we no longer deserve to be called your sons. And we come to you. And it says that in that day, the Lord will respond. It will be the new Garden of Eden. Hosea chapter 6 talks about some false tears, some false weeping, where the people bawl their eyes out, and they're, and they're crying to Yahweh, please help us, please help us. And then God responds to them and says, oh, your tears are just like the morning dew. You promise rain, you promise there's going to be blessing, but there isn't because it's just full of remorse. It's not really an honest mourning over your sin. And so Jesus, when he says, blessed are those who mourn, is picking up. He's picking up an Old Testament idea, saying, blessed are those who break over the reality of their sinfulness without Christ at work in their life. And they weep over that. They're deeply moved. And God then comes and comforts 
the ache in their soul. Blessed are the gentle, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This verse is very similar to blessed are the poor. The poor who have no resources, who are bankrupt in their spirit, tend to have a gentle spirit instead of a haughty spirit. I had a good illustration while I was watching the boys play soccer in Arlington this week. A, a good friend was there sitting next to me, and he said, Dave, I want to tell you something. And this friend had related to me many months ago about how he works in a large dealership in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, a car dealership. And he talked about an individual that came that was a minister. And the minister came and just lambasted every single person he was coming in contact with. He lambasted the painter of his car. He lambasted the person that fixed it. I mean, this guy was a tyrant. And I remember this friend of mine saying to me, Dave, you know, that's what really turns me off about the kingdom of God. And everybody in my shop was turned off because of the prideful arrogance. I mean, who does this guy think he is? So what if he's a minister? He could at least follow the common courtesies. Now, what kind of salt was that? It was mighty salty, but the wrong kind of salt. In fact, all over the United States, you can travel. And many times a minister will say, well, I'm a minister, as if you should get 10% because you're a minister. And it does great disjustice to the family of God. But this friend of mine said, this past week he came, I guess it was on Tuesday night, and he was really hanging his head like a whipped puppy dog. He said, you will not believe what I did. Here I am, I'm the head of this big car place, repair place, I took one of my client's car out after it was all fixed, which is part of my job to make sure that we're serving the client well. I was testing out his big Suburban, and I got creamed right on the side of it. I mean, somebody sideswiped me and just wiped out the Suburban. And I had to get on the phone, and he says, I haven't had to do it in ages, but I had to do it. And very meekly, he got on the phone and said, you're not going to believe this, but your Suburban is wrecked. Well, at the championship game on Friday night, I saw him again. I said, hey, how are things going with the Suburban? He says, David, remember that story I told you about a year ago about the preacher? Let me tell you another story. He said, you know, that fella came in, and the way that he acted towards me, it was as if he had wrecked the Suburban. I thought I felt badly that I that had messed up his truck. But this guy, instead of being angry, instead of being all uptight, he was all concerned about the fact that I was upset about it. And he said, well, you can fix it, can't you? And, I, and, the, and this friend of mine said, sure, we can fix it. That's no problem. But the whole direction of this fellow, instead of being angry and irate, how could a dealership ever mess up my truck? The guy's whole attitude was... I'm so sorry that you feel so badly about it. It'll all work out, and thanks a lot for fixing it. And my friend said to this guy, you know, the way you've acted in this situation, I can't help but think, but maybe, let me just ask you, what do you do for a living? And the guy said, well, uh, what do you think I do for a living? And this friend of mine looked at me and he said, well, I, what I'd really like to say is, I think you're probably a minister. And the guy kind of looked down for a minute. He said, you know, 
That's the neatest thing that anyone's told me in a long, long time. Because that's true. He said, I'm the pastor. It was one of the major churches over in Arlington. And he said, that's the neatest thing anybody ever said to me. Blessed are the gentle. You see how that salt goes out? And that's what Jesus was saying. Blessed are the gentle because they will inherit the earth. One day it's going to be that kind of equality. Isn't it exciting to realize that one day we're going to live in a world kingdom that's dominated by the Son of God and gentleness, meekness, humility like that is going to be the watchword of the entire planet. And we need to start being a foretaste of that in our dealings with people. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Luke has, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Because the condition of most of the people that Dr. Luke was writing to in the first century, they knew what it was to hunger and thirst. How many of you know what it is to hunger and thirst? All the teenagers need to raise your hand. You feed them a great big meal. You go to a soccer game. They play two hours of soccer. The very first thing they say is, let's go get a pizza. You know, so teenagers know what it is to hunger and thirst. Now, if you're in the first century and you're living in Palestine, you really know what it means to hunger and thirst. And it's not just the, the hunger pains after about three hours of not eating. It might be a whole couple days where all you had was a piece of bread and a little bit of water. Now, what happens when you get really thirsty? I think we all know what it means to get very, very thirsty. Man, there's intensity, isn't it? You know, when you, when you just haven't had a drink in a long time and somebody puts a nice cold glass of water and you can see the droplets forming on the outside of the glass and, man, you're just coveting that. You just got to have it and you reach for it with intensity. Well, if you're going to do anything in life, you're going to have to have that kind of desire, that kind of intensity. When my brother was here, we were sharing about playing the piano. We were debating about whether or not you hit your kids over the knuckles with a ruler to get them to practice. And uh, some of us were saying, yeah, that's what you need to do. You need to get discipline into their lives, right? How many of you have kids taking piano lessons? He says, man, you've got to get discipline into their lives. And we need to discipline our kids. And, and don't let them quit too easily. But you know, Don said something really interesting. He said, you know, he said... You can't, with a ruler, beat desire into a kid learning to play the piano. He says, you can't give them that kind of hunger. And he says, as I work with training young kids in how to play the piano, and in, in my own life, when my older brother Don was seven years old, he quit the piano because he was tired of it. But when he was 10, he picked it up again. And when he picked it up again, he picked it up with desire. Because you know what happened? He got working with a teacher that was unbelievably good. He got working with a teacher who could begin anywhere in one of the hardest pieces imaginable and just play it. And this teacher would have two pianos in her den back to back. And she would have her student work on a piece and she would begin to play any place during their piece with perfect rhythm, every note perfection, and she would drive them to go for what was right. And Don said, you know, Dave, that got in my blood. You see, when I fumbled up, I was hungry 
to be able to be like my teacher. And that's the kind of hunger that produces a great artist. And you can't generate that by hitting with a ruler. It has to come from inside, from way down deep in here, whether it's in music or athletics. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, blessed, approved are those who from deep in their heart get a hunger to allow the master to play through them. You notice how I changed it a little bit? Because that's the only way it can be done. You see, the scripture saying, blessed are those who get a hunger, who get an appetite to have the master play through them so that they're right. Are you hungry for what's right? Are you hungry for what is right? 